From KUT News and the Texas Tribune, this is The Ticket. We demand our liberty. That American dream is pivotal for the future of our country. Americans have come back from some pretty tough economic times. But we can and must do better. And we are going to make our country great again. I'm Jay Root. And I'm Ben Philpott. Today on the show, the polls have gotten so close that it looks like the assumed Clinton victory is more of a toss-up. So we'll talk about where the race stands now and the evolution and effect of polls in the 2016 election with Republican pollster Chris Perkins. And because we're based here in Texas, we'll talk about how the national race could, might, maybe, possibly affect politics in the Lone Star State with Texas Tribune CEO and noted New York Yankees fan Evan Smith. But first, Ben, just a few days left, and now it looks like the race is closer to a toss-up. You know, it's been really weird. If you look at places like 538.com or uh, Real Clear Politics, it's been really interesting to see how the race has gone. It's been these big three circles that have opened up. If you watch the trend line of Clinton going up, Trump going down, then they close together. Then the Republican and Democratic conventions happen, and they jump back up again. And then they close together, and then the first debate happens, and they jump back up again, and now they're closing back together. It's three big circles. Um, And I don't know if, you know, I don't know how close these circles are going to get to touching. It looked like today they finally started to, uh, they finally started to to flatten out instead of uh, being on trajectory to to touch again at 50-50, but. I think every time the stories are about Clinton, um, she doesn't do too well. And, um, you know, when, when Donald Trump has the discipline to shut up, um, it, it's, it, it, it could have been his for the taking. I mean, now, of course, there was the tape, and there's been a lot of, of really bad stuff. But, I mean, uh, uh, you know, if, if Donald Trump were less Donald Trump and just let Hillary Clinton go out there and, you know, uh, explain WikiLeaks, uh, you know, that's when that's when he seems to do better. We were talking about the interesting choice that Donald Trump was making to go to some of these states that we just thought were absolutely in the bag for Hillary. You know, it, he was saying, no, no, this is expanding the map. This is going to help me get to 270. And I think there were a lot of raised eyebrows. Like, you know, what do you mean? How can you think that Wisconsin, how can you think New Hampshire, how can you think Colorado? How, why, why are you heading to some of these places? And now it looks like New Hampshire is about the last stand for Hillary. I mean, based on the current polling, you know, New Hampshire is the state that puts her over 270, and that's getting closer as well. This is going to be the strangest uh, electoral map in a long, long time. Um, I mean, you know, the the paths to victory have, for both of them have changed so dramatically. I mean, I, I don't know if this is going to be over, uh, you know, at eight o'clock or uh, if we're going to have a long night. It's just it's crazy that there's this much uncertainty going into an election like this. Right. And that's and you're absolutely right. It is either going to be an early night or it's going to be a late night, because yeah. if Hillary Clinton wins Florida and North Carolina and Pennsylvania, it's it really is pretty much over mm. uh, and Virginia. If she doesn't win Florida or if she doesn't win North Carolina, then you have to look to what happens in Iowa and Ohio and what happens in Nevada and uh, what happens in Colorado. Uh, so, yeah, it, 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 we could either be done by, you know, 7.30 local time in Austin, or we could be done at midnight. As we just mentioned, polling in 2016 has been all over the place. So we wanted to get a little clarity, not in what polls are right or wrong, but in what's happening to the polls in 2016. How are they evolving? Chris Perkins is a Republican pollster for the firm WPA, and he was a Ted Cruz pollster during the 2016 campaign. We kicked off our conversation by asking him if there was anything we should make of the way the polls are being conducted this time around or the results we're seeing. Every poll has a different way that it is conducted. Um, you know, and, and the, 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 the polls that are being done by, you know, major news outlets and media organizations, you know, one thing to remember is that the, the reasoning for do them is to, is to drive news versus, you know, what we do internally is, it's different. It's for internal value, strategic value, how you, 
get from X place to Y place. You know, the the news outlet surveys are done. Um, I'm not going to say tremendously differently, um, but it, let's be honest here. They they are done on on the very inexpensive way. I mean, what is the the least expensive way to find a result to basically write a story, do a story on them. So methodologies are different. Some use um, robo-polling, which doesn't allow cell phone dials and are landline only, which is uh, is a flaw because of the fact that you can't reach the large amount of cell phone-only households that are, that are nationally. And then there are a lot of them that do um, internet polling. Um, online polling is very difficult to get a, a, an accurate representation of the sampling from, et cetera, et cetera. And then there are, there are the more traditional means of, of live polling. Some use, uh, most do not use voter lists. Some describe themselves as registered voters. Some describe themselves as adults. So I think, I think in general, a lot of the, the wild swings you see um, are because of different ways that the polling is being conducted. The other side of that is the length of time it takes to complete. I mean, a good poll is going to take, you know, if it's a national survey, roughly two to three days to complete. A lot of times these are taking a week. And and in the past, sometimes a a week-long survey is not a bad thing. But this is an election that we've seen such wild swings in, in such short intervals that the the surveys and polls that are done with lengthy time frames that started, you know, a week ago and then ended, you know, seven or eight days, a lot of times you're not catching the actual movement of the electorate just, just because of this, the nature of this election. I mean, we've just seen such wild swings that it's, it's difficult to get a, to get a grip on, on what's going on uh, in, in, with a longer poll. So the shorter polls are the ones that, that, are, that are probably a little bit more sound. Well, what is going on? Because is, are we seeing one of those wild swings right now because of the FBI, the Comey effect? I think so. I think that's part of it. Um, you know, the other, the other side of this is if, if you look back at the actual results of the previous four presidential cycles, I mean, if you go back to 2012, Obama won nationally, not talking about the Electoral College, but won the national popular vote by four points. In 2008, Obama won by six points. In 2004, Bush won by three. So you're basically seeing, you know, roughly a, you know, a three to six point difference among the national popular vote. And yes, while, you know, oh, 10 days, two weeks ago, there was a number of polls showing Hillary up between, you know, nine to 12 points. Um, the nature of the election has always been within four to six points. So a move back to a closer race, in my opinion, is, is just not that surprising. Does it have something to do with the recent FBI reopening the investigation? Yeah, I would think that's probably part of the equation. But even looking back at the national results from the past three election cycles have always showed a close result. So even if a previous poll was suggesting Clinton up 10 and now she's only up one, well, most of these surveys still have a margin of error, roughly four to five points. So that's that's basically showing where the national mood is. And in the three previous, you know, going dating back to 2004, the national popular vote has always been within, you know, single digits. So that's where I expect this to go. What's happening in Florida? Florida is always a close one. I mean, right now on the public polling, if you kind of look at the averages or at least look at the ones that have come out recently, you're seeing a very close race, depending on, um, you know, when it was done, all, all the things that we talked about earlier, basically seeing single digits um, for either Hillary Clinton or for Donald Trump. Florida is just always one of those, those states that could, just comes down to the wire. I mean, I don't, I don't know that we've seen anybody really run away with Florida um, in, in years, and it's, it's basically been a, a one- to three-point race. So I think I think that's I think that's exactly what's going on. Florida is performing like Florida, and it will be close, and it will be probably somewhere in between a one to four point race at at the end. So that another one that's not really that surprising to me. 
So I wanted to ask you about the idea of uh, campaigns using polls to kind of guide their message. Obviously, that's something that candidates have done uh, for a long time. But do you feel like something has shifted in this election where, I mean, you literally have Donald Trump, you know, at rallies asking people, you know, kind of focus grouping different things that he might try in the future. Or we got the emails. I believe there was an email before. Uh, maybe it was, the, I guess it was probably the first debate saying, how should he address Hillary Clinton? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is yeah. that, uh, uh, is, is, the, is this a step, could this be considered a step too far or is it simply just maybe bringing into the light what campaigns have done with internal polling for decades? Sure. Yeah, I'll give you two 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 ways to look at that. There's the Donald Trump view, and then there's the the, the the traditional candidate view. It's hard to say really what Donald Trump is doing if he's using internal polling. That part I have no idea. But I mean, one thing that we've noticed about about Trump is is because he is such a national figure and already has a an established national brand. And, and gets just gourds of media attention based on anything he does. He has the ability to try this thing one day, that thing tomorrow, X next week, Y the week after, just to see what, what actually is, it, it sticks for the most part. What, 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 is, what is it that actually, that actually is, is something that he can either – say or do that garners attention, for lack of a better term. I don't know that there's really any polling science to what Donald Trump is doing. Um, now, stepping back onto, the, onto other campaigns, I mean, one of the things, you know, from the, from the standpoint of what we utilize is when you, when you look at messaging, there's, there's a number of ways to utilize polling to understand messaging. And, and a lot of these are in publics where you ask the single most important issue. And this year what we're seeing is you always see the jobs and the economy issue as is usually number one. It's, an e- it's a, a general economic message. But this time you're seeing a lot of national security, um, terrorism, ISIS, those type of national security type of issues start to become a, 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 a solid number two. That wasn't the case um, years ago. So while candidates are always going to have to run on some level of discussing the economic impact of electing them versus their opponent, you're seeing national security also come into the equation more so than in years past. Um, now, one of the things on the, on the Republican side that we've noticed um, and this is not nationally, and this is very different from an, a national race, but when you, when you get into specific states or specific districts, one of the things that we want to know is not only what the bigger theme messages are, like national security and jobs and the economy, but what is it that that Republican member or candidate is either doing or suggesting that they will do from a local means. And that is what we've seen a lot um, in a number of states and districts is to have the Republican candidates, specifically, I'm not going to t- speak for the Democrats, but the Republican candidates focus on either their accomplishments or what they are going to do. And a lot of that is because because of the national race and because you have two candidates that are very upside down on their favorable, unfavorable numbers, you see a means of the, can- uh, of the minds of the voters disconnecting the presidential race from the local race, whether that's a U.S. Senate race, a congressional race, or a race for state representative uh, or a state legislative seat. It is the means of, of, of attempting to disconnect the national politics from the no- local politics. And that's what we've seen is, is the most beneficial means for the Republicans, is not to get into the sparring match that has become the presidential race. Well, you know, I think some people would argue, uh, in fact, we've heard some people argue, well, you know, it's easy to tell which U.S. senator is going to distance themselves from Donald Trump. You just have to look and see how close their Democratic challenger is to them. And uh, but but, you know, I, I wonder, though, is that is that merely something that people are picking on because it's this one particular kind of black and white, you're supporting the Republican presidential candidate or you're not? Um, when it seems like in close races in more swingy states to begin with, you over, you know, 
over the decades have had candidates break away from their own party on other specific maybe policy issues um, because they know that their their state is just you know built a different way. It, is, does it just seem to be getting more grief this time around because we're talking about a candidate instead of a policy issue? Sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there is the the old saying still rings true is that all politics is local. And 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 I think in outside of the presidential race, I think you're seeing that come to fruition a lot more this cycle than we've ever seen just because of the situation with the national race. Now, that does not mean um, that the Democrats in some states will attempt to score political points by tying the candidate, the Republican candidate, to Donald Trump in a place that he's uh, incredibly unpopular. And the same is true on Hillary Clinton's side. There are also states where she is a lot more unpopular, and it, in, 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 in some cases the Republican candidate would attempt to do the exact same thing as the Democrat in a different state, is tie the Democrat opponent to the Hillary Clinton because of her unpopularity. I believe, personally, that is a risky strategy in both cases, um, whether you're a Republican candidate or a Democratic candidate. I, I believe that, that is my opinion that is risky because that goes into more what I was saying earlier. I, I, think, it is more, I think it is more beneficial to disconnect um, the particular race that you know, said candidate is running in with national politics because this cycle, more than others, the electorate is viewing the national race very separate from others. I mean, a lot of times we, you've heard the term coattails. We talk about, you know, does this candidate have coattails? Is there going to be a coattail effect? Well, this is a race where this is the shortest set of coattails in, in modern history. I mean, for, for, for both sides. Hillary Clinton has very small, if any, coattails, and Donald Trump has virtually the same, virtually no coattails. So the more you can disconnect yourself your campaign from the national politics and present a different tone and a different, potentially different message, I think it's beneficial. Now, yes, national politics are always going to drive turnout, but the voters' attention span does get uh, a lot more heightened to down-ballot races, especially this time of year when they're, when they're, when they're making their decisions. You know, we've seen the risk of, of that strategy of, of trying to tie your opponent to uh, the national candidate. We've seen it in the 23rd Congressional District, which is the only competitive congressional race in Texas. It's uh, Pete Gallego and Will Hurd. And for the entire race, Pete Gallego has attempted to tie uh, Will Hurd to Donald Trump. And then lo and behold, on Friday, when the FBI report came out, they're like, hey, Pete, what about that? (laughs) You know, and so it's like, you know, the tables get turned and I'm wondering if uh, we know we've seen this in North Carolina, we've seen it in New Hampshire, we've definitely seen it in Pennsylvania, where these are nail biter Senate races. Do you think that it, it, what what's going to happen in the Senate? Is the Senate going to remain in Republican hands, or is it up in the air just as much as the presidential uh, race? What are your polls telling you? Oh, yeah, I, I think it is going to be very close. I mean, I would say the ones that you really want to be paying attention to on election night are going to be Missouri, Indiana, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, uh, and Nevada. I mean, I think those, those are, the, those are r- roughly the five or six that are ultimately going to decide, d- decide the U.S. Senate. And all of them are. I mean, every, every survey, whether it's internal or whether it is, um, you know, public polling. Most of the public polls show every single one of those is single-digit margin of error race. So, I mean, really could go either way. I mean, this is, this is one of those scenarios where the Democrats need to, uh, they need to either net four or five, depending on if they win the presidential race, but let's hypothetically say five. I mean, there is, they're, they're right there for the taking. So I think, I think it's a coin flip as far, wow. as, far as where the Senate <laughs> wow. goes. But those six specifically are, are the ones to, to really just eyeball on election night. Interesting, I'm- Nevada, um, it, may, it may not be, <laughs> uh, Nevada's Harry Reid's seat, um, 
It is West Coast time. They close the polls late in Nevada, and maybe till three or four o'clock in the morning that all eyes are on Nevada to see who wins the Senate. Well, that'll that'll keep us all up real late, won't it? I think the Missouri vote's fascinating just because it's a state that I think Donald Trump's up by nearly double digits, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, but in the Senate race the Democrat is actually ahead by a little bit. And that just seems, especially in a year where uh, everyone has, you know, uh, essentially been under the the dark blanket of whoever their candidate is at the top of the ticket, it seems very interesting to have a race that could separate itself so much from that uh, presidential race. Very true. I mean, the, 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 give the Democrats credit on in the Missouri Senate race. They recruited a very good candidate. Um, uh, and, and Roy Blunt, uh, Senator Blunt, is a very well-recognized, well-regarded name in, the, in, in Missouri. And yes, you do have a, a Republican-leaning state that's, that, is likely to go on, that is likely to go for Trump, who knows really how much for. And then you have uh, the Senate race there that, is, you know, that, that basically is a good contrast for the Democrats with a very strong candidate. Although, although Senator Blunt himself is, is not unpopular at all. He's, he's very well regarded in the state, but it is an interesting contrast. You also have a governor's race in, in Missouri. So uh, you know, one, of, one of the things about Missouri when you've got a presidential race and a governor's race and a U.S. Senate race, I mean, you want to talk about saturation. I, 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 I bet voters are getting massive amounts of voter contact. They probably can't turn on the television or open their mailbox without seeing anything political news right. in that state. Chris, what has surprised you, uh, so, you know, in the last week here as we as we move into this Tuesday election night? Yeah, I, I would say I, I don't know that anything has surprised me over the last week. I would say the entire cycle has been just a very interesting, very unlike anything we've we've really ever seen. I think you know, starting in the primary, the the massive swings in public opinion in the primary on both sides. Um, you know, the Republican and the Democratic side had very large swings. Then getting into the general election, you've just, I, I just don't know that I've ever seen a situation in when you have a, a, a very, uh, well, let me, go, let me go back. So you've got two candidates. We always measure in polling, if you, if you look at some of these, the favorable, unfavorable opinion. Now, when you get a lot of negative information and, and when the race starts to turn nasty, you do see um, the, the unfavorable opinion of usually both presidential candidates start to move up. But in most cases, you know, it's only single digits. I mean, in this case, you see two presidential candidates that are upside down, meaning their unfaves outnumber their faves by double digits in most cases in the teens. And that's the part that makes it, I don't know that it surprises me, but it makes it really hard to, to predict what is going on when you see, when you have two candidates that are equally as unpopular. You know, you've heard the term we're voting for the lesser of two evils. That, that term pops all the time. But I've never seen an election where that is absolutely the case. <laughs> There's just such a heavy majority of, of voters that have an unfavorable opinion of both presidential candidates. And it, it causes a lot of, of models to be unstable, to predict turnout, to, to understand the mood of the electorate. And that's also why you just you see such wild swings. I mean, the thing that, to answer your question, what has surprised me the most is the massive wild swings in polling that we've seen this year due to the presidential race. It's, it's nothing like I've ever seen before. So where do you stand on the issue of not paying your pollster? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's an unfortunate piece. <laughs> Always pay your pollster. Well, the rule of thumb is uh, is you uh, and, and what is it? You never make strategic decisions on polls you don't pay for. So in Donald Trump's case, since he's not paying him, I guess he can make whatever strategic decision he wants. So. <laughs> um, I just had one other question, and I guess maybe you know we've I guess maybe we've had this answered over the last couple of days as we've seen the polls continue to tighten in states that we maybe didn't consider they might. But what do you what do you make of uh, Donald Trump trying? He started about a week ago trying to expand the map, and I think at the time everybody said, "What in the world is he doing?" And of course, now it looks like New Hampshire is the last stand for Hillary Clinton if she's going to win the presidency. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I actually believe both candidates have attempt, had attempted are attempting to expand the map. I mean, one of the things that that Donald Trump is doing is he is looking to states like Michigan, like Pennsylvania, um, like Wisconsin as states that he could potentially do well in based on based on the demographic groups of voters in those states. Having said that, Hillary Clinton is also attempting to compete in places like Arizona and Missouri and Georgia, places. You know, so basically, I think in both cases, I think you're seeing both of them attempt to expand the map. I mean, you know, in the past, you basically look at your red states and your blue states, and then it all comes down to Florida and Ohio for the most part. I mean, that's, that's almost one of the – it's almost become kind of the standard presidential campaign operating procedure. In this case, because of the wild swings in the polling, I think you're seeing both campaigns attempt to expand the map, rightfully so. I mean, I mean if, if I'm Hillary Clinton's campaign, I'm going to go after Arizona, Missouri, and Georgia. If I'm Donald Trump's campaign, I'm going to go after Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan, some of the, those, those type of states that have demographic groups that favor them. So it is interesting, um, you know, from a, from a tactical standpoint, I think Hillary Clinton is more strategically placed because she has a lot more resources um, available to her, at least from the campaign end, to do that than Donald Trump is. Um, but it's, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not an unworthy investment to attempt to expand the map on either side for, for Trump or for Clinton. I think that's a very good strategic thing for them to try and do. I have one last very simple question. What is that? What is the name of the next president of the United States? <laughs> <laughs> you know, to be dead set honest, I I really don't know. With with the I would have told you if we had this a week ago that Hillary was likely the winner. Um, I still give her the advantage, but I think because the polling has tightened, it really is up up in the air. Now, if you go if you go state to state, I still believe she has an electoral college advantage. But as we were just talking about, expanding the map is something that the campaigns are going to do. So while I would give her the advantage today, we've still got six days to see what happens. Why don't you call me, call me in a week and I'll tell you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess it just all depends on whether or not she wins Texas, right? There, yeah, that's right. Well, if she wins Texas, I, she will definitely be the president. Yeah, I think so. There's no doubt about that. I think even PolitiFact said that's correct. That's exactly right. Have you looked at Texas? As to, I would assume that, that he's uh, more comfortable now. Is that, is that right? Is it moving more in his direction? I will admit internally I haven't looked, but looking at okay. the public polling, I mean, one of the things about Texas is public polling is, is Texas is one of the more difficult states to, do, to conduct public polling in for all kinds of reasons because we're really diverse, because we're really large, and because we have a, such a high cell phone-only uh, population that most polling isn't, isn't, uh, isn't doing. I mean, this is a little bit of my educated guess without any sort of internal knowledge. I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't see Trump losing Texas. I don't really see it being competitive for, for many different reasons. But I do see, I, I could see somewhere between a six to nine point victory for Trump, somewhere, somewhere in that range. I know there's been polling that has showed it a lot larger. Uh, and maybe that is the case. That's one of those things where I'm, 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 I'm guessing a little bit on this one. Um, but I don't see it being in play. Trust me, if it were in play, Hillary would have, she's got the money, she could yeah. put it in play. She could have done it if she wanted to, if she well, really saw a race here. Well, don't worry about guessing. Jay and I have been doing that for <laughs> we'll, about 62 we'll say, episodes. I was going to say, yeah. we'll take guesses. That's fine. No <laughs> problem. That's right. <laughs> well, thanks so much for taking time to talk with us today. Of course. Appreciate your time, guys. Thank, Thank you. Thank Okay, so there's a bit on the national race. But, of course, Jay and I live here in Texas and cover politics here in Texas. So how is this up-and-down national race affecting things here? Joining us to answer some of those questions uh, about Texas politics is uh, Jay's boss and my best friend, Texas Tribune CEO Evan Smith. You're just trying to get me to root for the Atlanta Braves. I, I think that uh, after considering the protests of the Cleveland Indians, uh, I think the Braves are going to have uh, some issues with their own names soon. You should have Chief Nakahoma on this uh, uh, on this podcast. I, that's what I need. <laughs> I have to say we we failed to record the last time we did this. Yeah. We, we, we had a little technical difficulty, but I want you to say what you said 
earlier the fact that I actually watched the World Series. What, right. And I'm the, not a sports guy. The so. one and only time when we can say with certainty that Jay Root is a red-blooded American male. And we finally have that on tape this rarely, time. Rarely Thank happens. Um, here's the quick answer to your question. What will the effect of Tuesday's presidential yep. election be on Texas? Not much in all likelihood. And the reason is that Donald Trump's going to win Texas and probably post-Comey win by a larger margin than we thought. And that's going to insulate a bunch of down-ballot Republicans from the ill effects of the top of the ticket. I, I still think what we'll probably see a few Republican lawmakers lose. But it will be more the Republican lawmakers who were going to lose all along or are probably going to lose all along because they were in close districts that have, have a tendency to swing back to Democratic in higher turnout presidential years. When Trump was down around three points in our poll and in a couple of other polls, the likelier outcome was that some Republican lawmakers who don't think they've got something to fear on Tuesday were going to get caught flat-footed and lose. But I think that's probably less likely to be the case now. Not a certainty. I mean, we have to see. We don't know what's going on. These early vote numbers in Texas right. are cray, as the teenagers say, right? Well, and, and we've talked to uh, uh, we talked to Jim Henson about this several times, the idea oh, of, you know, why idiot. do you – well. <laughs> <laughs> why do you why do you poll likely voters? You, you know, can't or, predict the electorate exactly. this time by basing it on the electorate last time. That is right. a truism of polling, and that may never be more the case than in this election when the cliched sleeping giant has been unleashed. The Hispanic vote in Texas has always underperformed relative to the percentage of the population that Hispanics now represent. And in this election cycle, which began with Donald, son, Donald Trump descending an escalator and talking about Mexican rapists, I mean, that was, you know, 17 months ago. That may have been the first time that the key was put into the lock, right, and unlocking the, the yep. potential greater Hispanic vote in Texas and elsewhere. We do not know what's going on. The numbers in El Paso County and Hidalgo County and look into five big counties, four of which went for Obama twice are crazy numbers, and we don't know what that is. We expect that there is a greater Hispanic turnout this time than in previous times. We just don't know how much greater. Right. We, I think our high point in 2008 was 59.5% voter turnout. Yeah. It looks like this time we may be getting around 65%. Overall. 70% overall right. if something right. crazy happens, and and that is what you know different people have said. Is we don't know what it yeah. looks like if another... And if the Hispanic turnout goes up by the percentage that the National Association of Latino Elected Officials predicted before the Democratic Convention that it would go up, which was 10.5 percent, if the Hispanic turnout is that much higher in Texas, look, the Hispanic vote is no more monolithically one party than the Anglo vote. Let's not be stupid right. about this. But you have to imagine that if more Hispanic voters are turning out, they're more likely voting for Clinton than Trump. So that's good news for the Democrats. And so what I'm saying is we are basing our assumptions about what's going to happen on Tuesday on polls that may not be modeling the electorate Tuesday properly. And if the electorate is more heavily Hispanic or more heavily Democratic, this could be a closer race, in which case, as they say, Katie bar the door, right? Katia. Katia bar the door. Juanita bar the door. <laughs> because if, that, if that's the case, then there are some districts in Dallas that have been Democratic in our lifetimes that could conceivably swing back. There are some districts in another district in Houston, beyond the obvious district in Houston. There's a district down in Kingsville. There are some seats that are potentially at risk if the Democratic turnout is way, way up. And we know that Donald Trump is running behind the previous Republicans last four cycles at the top of the ticket. McCain in 08, who beat Obama by 11, Perry against Bill White in his last race for governor, who won by 13, Romney, who beat Obama in Texas by 16, and Greg Abbott, who beat Wendy Davis by 20. Even if Donald Trump has come back to the place of being in high single digits, as the NBC News Wall Street Journal Marist poll suggested this week, that is still behind significantly where Republicans right. have been in the past. He's better than 50 percent or worse than 50 percent behind Greg Abbott in 2014. If Republicans are staying home and not voting, then some people who do not now know they're at risk are at risk. I got to think that uh, the Republican elected officials in Texas are praying that Donald Trump wins big in Texas and loses the presidency because wouldn't it be a nightmare to have Donald Trump as president in Texas because the Hispanics, would, Hispanics stay mad? You're thinking long right? term. I'm thinking from the Republicans' perspective, they hate Washington. They hate everything that comes out of Washington. They don't want to have to deal with a Democratic administration for four more years. They were able to pump the brakes on dealing with the health care issue just to pick one 
subject vertical in this state. Texas has 4.6 million people without health insurance. 17.1% of the population has no health insurance. We lead this, the country among the states in, in, with the highest percentage and, and raw number of our citizens without health insurance. Health care right now represents 37% of the all-funds budget in the state of Texas. Education is also 37%. Health care has never been close to being the number one line item in the all-funds budget until now. Health care costs are hockey-sticking. The Republicans in the state had the luxury – I'm going to project onto them, but I get to do that, right? They had the luxury in the last legislative session of pumping the brakes and saying we're not going to deal with this because we're going to hope we get our guy, whoever our guy ends up being, in the White House. In January of 2017 – and there's a move to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. If she, Secretary Clinton, wins, that's not going to happen. There may well be a case of Obama nostalgia in the Texas legislature should Secretary Clinton win. Where'd that nice man from Kenya go? You know, that's what you're going to be hearing <laughs> up the street. And so, and so I'm saying that, yes, Trump presents a problem for Texas Republicans in the sense that he may cause the acceleration of the changeover from red to blue or red to purple. That's not a minor thing. But I have to say, I think they would far prefer to have Donald Trump in the White House than Hillary Clinton. No close second. And so no the chance. F- the flip side of we don't know exactly who's voting. We don't know who, if we end up with another two and a half million voters, we don't know who they are voting for because they are unlikely voters. The flip side of that is uh, 2018 doesn't look positive for Democrats no matter what happens. No, no, and I think there's a a, a tendency by some who have been deprived of anything to be positive about (laughs) in this state for the last 20 plus years. You mean Democrats. No, Democrat elected (laughs) statewide since 1994. They look at a race that even Donald Trump wins by single digits, even by eight or nine, and they go, oh my God, this is the greatest thing. (laughs) And then they get overconfident, overly exuberant, and then they go into 2018 and they get their butts handed to them because this is Trump, not trend. This election cycle is different because of him. It's not necessarily something that sticks. Now, they could make it stick. They could figure out a way to make it stick. And this is to Jay's point. If he's in the White House, then he's a constant reminder of what made it different this time. But if you go past this election cycle, you've got Trump on the losing end of the presidential race. My sense, and it's mine. I don't have any proof of this, but I intuit this. Trump returns to the place he was previously. He ascends the same escalator he descended on June 16th of last year. Trumpism does not survive Trump, and the Trumpkins, the people who have been unleashed, the virus some believe let out of the test tube in this presidential campaign where reporters are getting cussed at and people are getting punched, right? That whole strain of politics, I believe, goes back into the hole it crawled out of. I don't believe that also remains. I think that the Republican Party regains control of this, extinguishes the dumpster fire. And the party goes back to being the party we've known it to be, which is sort of center-right-right right or center-right-right-right right or whatever it is, right, the new party. And it, in Texas, they go back to being reliably 15 to 20 points ahead in statewide races. I don't think that you have the potential for Democrats to come back around barring some kind of a scandal. Now, there are select cases on the ballot in 2018 where Republicans may be slightly more vulnerable to being defeated Well, and that, yeah, and than I was, others. I was going to follow up with that. Uh, if Democrats do take a single-digit loss as momentum, right? Um, who do you see? Wh- where are Republicans vulnerable in 2018, and and what Democrats are out there to you know make any kind of a challenge? The, the, the problem is that Greg Abbott and Dan. The problem for the Democrats is that Greg Abbott and Dan Patrick are not vulnerable to being defeated in the absence of some cataclysm, right? Glenn Hager is not going to get defeated. George P. Bush is not going to get defeated. Not the, in a general election. No, no. I mean, and the two people in the two people at, at, at more risk, and I want to underscore the word "more" because it's relative, are Ken Paxton and Sid Miller because of the unforced errors that they've uh, uh, committed. I mean, and I think Paxton would probably take issue with that. He thinks that this is a conspiracy against him. And peace, let him, let him, and his people argue that that's fine. But the fact is that he's in a situation in which he presents a vulnerable face to a potential challenge. In Sid Miller's case, you know, the Democrats are looking at Sid Miller and saying, see you next time, right? Uh, They're thinking to themselves, you've given us an opening. I mean, we have a story. That's what a lot of Republicans are saying, too. We have a story in in the Texas Tribune today. Abby Livingston, our Washington, D.C. bureau chief, has a story today that quotes on the record, and I'm told gleefully on the record, people were coming out of the woodwork to talk to her on the record. Women in the Texas Republican Party who go, 
post Sid Miller's campaign account uh, tweeting the C word, post Blake Farenthold making his comments saying, you know, I don't know if I would oppose Donald Trump if it could be proven that he had committed sexual assault. Post um, uh, uh, Brian Babin, the congressman from East Texas, saying sometimes women need to be told they're nasty. And post the totality of Donald Trump, Abby's got a bunch of Republican women in Texas quoted as saying, this may no longer be my party. You know, and I bet you one of them, right. one one of those are going to decide that it is their party, and they're going to be running against it. Well, Miller you know, I've wondered, and maybe against Ken Paxton. Candidly, Jay, I've wondered where the women are in Texas running as Republicans. Christy Craddock is the exception to that. She is yep. the railroad commissioner, and of course, you've got Deborah Lehrman and Eva Guzman on the Supreme Court. Those are down ballot people, but up at the top, remember we used to have Susan Combs as the comptroller, or Carol Strayhorn before that, but. For a party that has actually done pretty well at making inroads into electing statewide Hispanic candidates, statewide African-American candidates, the number of Republican women at the top of the leadership ladder has been interestingly not there. And you may be correct. Now, you'd have to show me who that would be, right? Of course, um, right. You know, maybe it's somebody from the legislature who decides to run. You know, there's only, I believe, one Republican big city mayor who is a woman – at the moment, and that's Betsy Price in Fort Worth. Um, there's Kate Granger in Congress, but Kate Granger is definitely on the leftward end of the Republican delegation ideologically compared to some of the others who might be persuaded to run for something. I mean, we don't know who those candidates might be. But from the Democratic Party's perspective, we definitely don't know yeah. who they would be. <laughs> I mean, we're sitting here now two years out from the next statewide elections. Let us acknowledge that in 20. 12, if we were having the same conversation, Wendy Davis was on no one's radar screen. The filibuster of the abortion right. bill did not happen until the end of the 2013 session. She only became a candidate in the minds of some and probably in her own mind for statewide office at the point of that filibuster. So that was in June, late June, early July, the two sort of the narrative arc of that whole thing began late June of 2013. So talk to me in June of 2017 and I may be able – or May of 2017, I may be able to tell you – uh, or, or June or July, who, who a Democratic candidate potentially may be coming out of a legislative session. But as I sit back here, there are basically three plausible statewide candidates in Texas who are Democrats, really. There's yeah, but how many of them really. are not named Castro? Castro, Castro Davis. <laughs> you know, maybe Anise Parker as a close or distant fourth. In the last know. hour, you've given up on Beto O'Rourke, huh? No, I haven't given up on Beto O'Rourke. No, Beto O'Rourke, who is the congressman from El Paso, who said to me at an event that the Texas Tribune put on today that he was considering running for the Senate. But I'm thinking about if you're just mm. uh, the, the uninitiated, not people who are down in the weeds with this stuff, but if you step back and you go, who are the big Democratic brands in Texas? Beto O'Rourke may decide to run for statewide office, but he is not a big Democratic brand. Right. The big Democratic brands are Castro Castro Davis, and then Anise Parker would be a fourth. I'm prepared to say that it is not only plausible, but likelier than not, if not damned close to certain, that zero of those four runs statewide the next time. If and this Hillary is a good, Clinton is the president. Joaquin Donald, Ca if Joaquin Donald Castro, Trump's the president, I don't know. Well, Joaquin Castro is about the only one of those four who I give better than a 25% chance, well, and this was better a good, than a 10% chance. This was a good away. point you made in, in the Lost Tapes, the previous version of this conversation, right. which was um, uh, that there's not a deep bench. There's a handful of these nationally known or at least statewide known Democrats that could run, but they have to have the courage to give up their current job and yeah. do something. You've got to have the stones to run and you've got to have the resources to run. And the Democratic Party of Texas, which is beleaguered and maligned, uh, is not responsible for the predicament that the Democratic Party is in because they can't be a party that seeks to reclaim power without candidates. And you could argue, well, the party is responsible for candidate recruitment. Well, I mean, sort of. They can't force people to run. You know, Congressman Castro would have to give up his seat in Congress to run against Ted Cruz for the Senate, and that would be an uphill battle indeed. In the case of Congressman O'Rourke, if he were to get in a Senate race, he is at least committed to only serving four terms and out. He's a term limit advocate. And so he would not be giving up as much as, say, Congressman Castro would. Now, look, Secretary Castro is presumably going to be out of work after the Obama administration, unless he remains in some capacity in an next administration, should there be a Democratic administration. He might not see any you know great risk taken in in coming back to run for something statewide. But I, I think that's less likely than more likely. Senator Davis is, you know, 
she's fixing to be the Nicole Wallace or Steve Schmidt of the next four years, right? She's got a potential career as a cable television pundit Mm -hmm. compensated for that, giving speeches. In fact, she's kind of doing that now. And Anise Parker, you know, I don't know Anise Parker super well. She's a former mayor of Houston, right? I don't know how much Anise Parker wants to get down in the muck on this stuff. And in order to run statewide, you would have to really be like eager, thrilled to be in the right in there in the public and, and swinging away. And, you know, I just think that that is – it aligns with the temperaments of some and not with the temperaments of others. And I sort of think, I don't know that she's actually going to go do that. Maybe she would. But look, it, the problem is Democrats don't have a lot of bench. Now, I mentioned on the lost taping of this conversation <laughs> that San Antonio uh, Representative Trey Martinez-Fisher, Democrat, right. who is no longer going to be in the legislature after January because he ran for the state senate and lost to Jose Menendez, gave up his seat in the, in the House – He's the kind of person who knows how to make a fist. In fact, quite relishes making a fist. And he's a lawyer by background. That's somebody you could see running against one of the vulnerable Republicans. And again, however vulnerable Ken Paxton is remains to be seen. But you could see Trey Martinez-Fisher running potentially for attorney general. You could see the Democrats figuring out someone they could put up against Sid Miller if the Republicans don't get Sid Miller first in a primary. So – yeah, there's a possibility, but I think the idea that somehow 2018 is going to be the logical extension of 2016, barring something unforeseen, and that this turnout and the enthusiasm and confidence is going to somehow accelerate the turning of this state from red to blue or red to purple, I'm just not buying it. So we've already uh, – we'll let, wrap up with one quick question here. We've already talked about how the makeup of the legislature really doesn't look like it will change much even even with a closer race uh, at the top of the ticket. Do any of the issues change? Does is there is there any message delivered by a closer race? Well, you know, as I've said previously to you and to others, that the next legislature is going to be like Obamacare. You know, if you like your last legislature, you can keep it. You're going to end up with a legislature that is markedly not much different than the last one because the composition is going to be the same. The Senate's going to be exactly the same: twenty Republicans, eleven Democrats, no two-thirds rule. The lieutenant governor is going to be Dan Patrick, and the Senate's going to do what the Senate does, and they're going to have a very conservative agenda. They're going to get almost every they want passed through there. It's then going to come over to the House. Joe Strauss, spoiler, will be Speaker again. And while the Republicans in the House right now enjoy about a two-to-one advantage, even if the worst-case scenario happens on Tuesday and they lose six to ten members on the Republican side, they're still going to be 60-40. Democrats can't do anything on their own. Democrats can't prevent anything on their own. The House is going to be a solidly Republican House. The House will continue to have the same problems that it had last time, I predict, with the legislation that comes over from the Senate. You know, school choice, a great example. Dan Patrick is back on the school choice uh, uh, horse, riding that horse proudly. He intends to press it. Said to me the other day in Houston at an event for the Greater Houston Partnership that he would tie school choice to school finance. No one without the other was his exact words. Well, the House has been not receptive at all to school choice in the previous two sessions. And while It is noted by allies of the speakers that school choice is a misleading phrase because school choice means many things. It doesn't mean only one thing. Not all school choice will not be receptively received in the House, but school choice of a voucher sort will probably have a hard time getting traction in the House. I mean, there's an an issue in which the composition of the legislation not being that different, it probably sets up exactly the same. You know, it's conceivable that, again— the House will be more favorable to a dark money bill, and the Senate will decide, no, no thank you. They don't want to have that. The differences between the House and the Senate will be the differences. Look, I mean, we have to have some drama. Otherwise, why the hell are we in business? <laughs> What's the point? Um, it's journalism, not stenography. If everybody got along, it would just be boring. But I don't expect there to be much different, quite candidly, from last time to this time. And then we get into 2018 and we see. One last quick question. Yeah. What is the name of the next president of the United States? I asked Chris Perkins that, so I'm asking you that. I, I don't know. You know, I went into journalism not to do math, but I can count. And I can count to 270. And if I'm sitting here today, four days out, and I'm trying to figure out what's going to happen on Tuesday, I can count to 270 on the Democratic side a lot more easily than I can count on the Republican side. Here is something about this presidential campaign. It is the first campaign in my lifetime, and I've been watching this stuff for 40 years. You know, I'm on the wrong side of 50 now with all the aches and pains to to prove it. My first presidential campaign that I remember in excruciating detail was 1976 when I was 10 years old, Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford. And you know both – you know, I'm the Sid Vicious of political junkies. 
There is no junkier junkie in the world than That's me. That's true. That is true. Uh, I care about this stuff the way we care about sports. I know the players. I know the rules of the game. I read the agate-type box scores, right? I care about this stuff. And there's been no presidential election in my lifetime ever like this before or in yours, and there never will be again. Thank God. On behalf of America, thank God. Um, among the things in this campaign that I can say certainly I've never seen before, facts don't matter. Lies don't matter. Historical precedents don't matter, conventional wisdom doesn't matter, and certainly shame doesn't matter, okay? If this were a normal campaign, I'd go, well, she's more likely to get to 270 than he is. I'm willing to call the race right now. I have no idea what the hell is going to happen between now and Tuesday. You, nothing would surprise me between now and Tuesday. I will only believe that this race is over when it is actually over, and even then I may not believe it, so I can't answer that question. I think this podcast. What Chris over. Perkins say? He said. He said uh, Hillary. He said he would give the advantage to Hillary Clinton, but that you know it's a crazy year. It's the fact. Of, the fact um, is that even Republican, even Republican partisans, and Chris Perkins is a pollster for Republicans, right. and I don't think he's a partisan in a negative sense. I just think you know he tends to be redder than bluer. Right, that's his deal. <laughs> Republican partisans and even Republican nonpartisans, but Republican loyalists are all kind of saying, if I'm honest about this, I do the math, that's probably more likely her than him. I mean, that tends to be more interesting to me than what I might say about that, because they're the ones, it's against their interest to be saying that. We're going to see. We don't know. Um, Well, the other thing that I thought was fascinating about what he said was that the Senate is really up in the air, too, that, that, like, just, Yeah, I don't know. Here's the best... He he polls in those races and polls for the people that, you know... So we sat in here... We sat in here... him to do this. We sat in here an hour ago and taped this, and then it didn't happen, and so we're (laughs) retaping it. Fine. Just to give you an indication of what I'm talking about. So two things have happened from a news standpoint since we taped this the first time. Okay. And this is sort of proof of the weirdness of the world, or the... You can't really say... Uh, the uh, Bridget Kelly and um, and uh, Bill Baroni, who worked for Chris Christie and were on trial for Bridgegate, were found guilty on all counts. Since we yeah. last, since we last, so like that's like an interesting thing. But even better because I have to end this on an upbeat note. The first post-election Saturday Night Live is Dave Chappelle hosting, and the Tribe Called Quest is the musical guest. <laughs> that tells me that is a sign from God that all was going to be well. It's all going to be fine. It's the only positive note that I can end on. Texas Tribune CEO Evan Smith, thank you again for joining us. Hopefully we recorded this time. That's right. That's it this week from The Ticket. Thanks again to everyone who has been listening during this historic presidential campaign. As we wind down this election, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. I'm at ByJRoot, and Ben is at KUT. And we wanted to let you know that we'll have a post-election episode up Wednesday morning, November 9th. Uh, in fact, I think we're going to try to do a Facebook live streaming of the podcast while we're taping it. That way we can answer some of your questions live the day after the election. Uh, be watching for more info on what time that's going to happen on our Twitter feeds. The Ticket is a co-production of KUT News and the Texas Tribune. KUT News Managing Editor Matt Largy is our editor. And our theme music is by Ben Root. Thanks for listening. Thank you.